you are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. How are we doing? Welcome back to another installment of Coffee Cup Faith. For those of you who are watching or listening online, thank you for tuning in. And for those of you who are newer to City on a Hill, glad that you're with us. I hope that you find this place uh, uh, like a new home. And we'd love to have you come and join here and get involved in in advancing the mission of the help, hope, and healing of Jesus. You know, I love crazy stories. I love, I, I imagine most people like crazy stories, but I really love stories that have just some of the most improbable details, you know? Just kind of unbelievable, impossible sounding stories. I read this story this week about a, uh, an English woman named Alice Roth. She was married to a, a man named Earl Roth. He was the uh, sports editor for the Philadelphia Bulletin in the 1950s. And uh, so as a result, they were, they were very invested Philadelphia sports fans. I imagine that means they were quite violent. Um, I mean, it's just the history. It's a rich tradition, right? Um, At some point in August of 1957, they decided to take their grandkids to a Philadelphia Phillies game, Connie Mack Stadium, the northern part of Philadelphia. They were on the third baseline. And and I want to remind you, uh, this is not modern-day 2022 third baseline. This is 1957 third baseline. You're, like, on the field at this point, right? You're right there in the middle of the action. And uh, they were there to see their beloved Philadelphia Phillies and had their grandkids there, just a spectacular day, beautiful afternoon, and uh, legendary center fielder Richie Ashburn gets up to the plate and just has this incredible reputation as a batter, fights off all the bad pitches, really makes the pitchers work, right? Uh, Just a legend in Philadelphia sports, and he gets up to the plate, um, he swings and hits a foul ball and hooks it left right down the third base side and hits Alice Roth in the face. Horrible. And uh, she lived, obviously, serious injuries, but she did survive it. And uh, they immediately, the the Philadelphia uh, staff rushed down. Of course, the game was put on hold. Everybody was very concerned. They got the grandkids up and, you know, out of the stands and up kind of into the main landing area just to make sure that... They weren't kind of, you know, seeing things that were traumatic, and they brought a stretcher down, and they, they got Alice set up in the stretcher and all, you know, uh, secured in, and, and they began to lead her back up uh, the steps and, and out of the park. And so, of course, people were very concerned, but the game continued. They, they, they gave the green light. We're back running. It, Richie Ashburn swings and hits another foul ball and hits Alice Roth again while she's in the stretcher. <laughs> He hit her in the leg this time, so it was fine. And uh, the Phillies treated the family to a a very nice outing about a month later, probably not on the third baseline. But but, uh, what are the odds of this? I mean, you know, to to catch a a foul ball, it's like 1 in 835. But to be hit by one, unsuspected, much, much bigger odds. And to be hit twice in a row, I mean, back-to-back pitches hitting your body just seems like it, it seems impossible. It seems impossible. But not as impossible as another story I read about a girl named Laura Buxton. 
2001, she was at her grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, and uh, as they were cleaning up, this was in Staffordshire, England, as they were cleaning up the, the decorations, her and her granddad had this kind of interesting experiment that they wanted to conduct. They, they had a piece of paper, and Laura wrote her, her address, her home address on the piece of paper, and on the back, she wrote, please return to Laura Buxton. And they were going to attach it to the balloon and just let the balloon go. Now, just as a side note, this is a happy story. It's not like an unsolved mysteries thing, all right? It seems like a very dangerous prospect to put your address on a balloon and just send it off into the atmosphere. But this is what they did. They let it go, and the balloon flew 140 miles before it landed. Now, just by comparison, so that you have some idea of how far that is, if you were to go 140 miles west, you would be in Abilene, Texas. Uh, if you were to go 140 miles northwest, you would end up in Lawton, Oklahoma. So this is a long way. Like, this wasn't a couple blocks, 140 miles. It lands in some hedges on the property line that, that separated two properties in Milton Lilbourne in Wiltshire, England. And uh, a particular farmer owned one side of the property where this uh, property border uh, where the balloon landed was, and he happened to be outside. He saw it, and so he walked over to pick it up and discard it because he didn't want some of the animals uh, to, uh, that he was raising uh, eat it, you know, unsuspectingly. And so he, uh, he's taking it to the trash, and he notices this piece of paper, an address, please return to Laura Buxton. And he thinks to himself, wait a minute, my neighbor has a daughter named Laura Buxton, so he walks over, and he gives them this balloon. He says, hey, uh, is this yours? This is weird. It was in the hedges. It says, please return to Laura Buxton. And Laura Buxton number two uh, looks at it and says, no, I didn't, I didn't write that at all. And this is a different address. This is in Staffordshire. So they connect. They begin to talk. They're amazed. You know, two Laura Buxtons would come into contact with one another just by a random balloon being let go and landing in her yard. But it gets stranger. They meet up, and they discover they both have the same age. They're both roughly the same height. They both have the same eye color. They both had similar clothing. They both had black Labrador dogs. Both of their dogs were the same age with the same orange strip down their back. Both of them had pet guinea pigs. I'm not making this up. This is real. This is a, and this is a picture of them here as well. Uh, some years later, they're still friends. They remain friends. Uh, such a strange happenstance. It just seems impossible. But not as impossible as the third story I read. <laughs> this story was about a case study conducted on uh, identical twins that were separated at birth in Ohio. Uh, actually, the New York Times wrote a column on this in 1996. Um, they were separated by birth. They were adopted by two unrelated families in Ohio. They had no connection with one another whatsoever, uh, 70, 80 miles apart roughly. And despite having different families, different upbringings, having no knowledge of the other, they eventually learned of one another's existence and met together when they were 39 years old, only to discover some extremely eerie, similar life uh, patterns, if you will. Both of them, for example, were named Jim. One family named their newborn adopted child James Arthur Springer. The, un the other one unknowingly named their son James Edward Lewis. But it gets even crazier. <laughs> Both of them married and divorced a woman named Linda. Both of them remarried a woman named Betty. Both of them had sons. One of them named their son James Allen with two L's. One of them named him James Allen with one L. 
Both of them had an adopted brother named Larry. Both of them had a childhood dog that both of them named Toy. Both served as deputy sheriffs in separate towns 70 miles apart from one another. Both of them took vacations to the same three-block beach strip in St. Petersburg, Florida, and both of them drove to their vacations in Chevrolets. It seems impossible. It seems impossible. I actually titled the message this morning, It Seems Impossible, because it's exactly what our coffee cup verse is all about, the impossible the impossible becoming possible. And some of you probably have guessed it, but if you have not, let's do our big reveal. Our verse for the morning is Matthew nineteen twenty six, which we usually only quote half of. With God, all things are possible. Amen. Amen. Now, let's get this right out of the way, right off the bat. And let me acknowledge that even outside of the context of this passage, this is true. Right, like with God, all things are possible. We, we fully believe that. In theology proper, one of the things that we talk about with, with regard to God's attributes is God's omnipotence, meaning that God possesses a limitless amount of power. There, there's nothing that God cannot do. Don't take my word for it. Look at some of what the scripture says. Genesis chapter 18, God tells Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a baby. And uh, they're both advanced in age. It says that uh, Sarah is past the childbearing age that has ended for her. It just says flat out, Abraham is old. Uh, and, and, And they are going to, regardless of their age, regardless of what's going on with them biologically, God is going to bring them a child. And Sarah even laughs at this. She's like, there's no way that this is gonna happen. And God says in Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for Yahweh? Now this is a rhetorical question. He knows the answer to this. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Job chapter 42, verse two, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job recognized that God is capable of anything. There is nothing that stops the plans and the purposes of God. Nothing can contend with him. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 28, he says, Have you not known, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the unending God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Did did you not know that God never tires, that he never runs out of energy or power? He never slows down. He's limitless. Nothing stops him. Nothing slows him down. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32, 17. He says, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for God. So it is true. It is true, apart from the context of this passage, which we'll get to in a moment, with God, all things truly are possible. There's nothing that can contend with or stand in the way of our God. But is that what this verse is really communicating to us? That's the question. Is that really what this verse means? Usually when this verse is quoted, It's meant to encourage someone who faces some kind of impossible odds in their life, right? Like imagine you're an investor or a real estate agent and and you have this deal that you really need to close, but like there are just some things that you you can't imagine are actually going to happen in the sequence that they need to happen in order for the deal to close. You you have to get like a certain appraisal number that's way higher than what it should come in at and and you only have like the small window before the option period ends and the buyer has a contingency on their other house and you're just thinking, man, if this doesn't happen, if all these pieces don't fall 
fall into place, the deal is going to be off. And I need this deal to happen because I need the commission because I got bills I got to pay. And, and you're sharing this in, in your Bible study at church. And a very well-meaning brother, you know, kind of nudges at you and he says, hey, remember what the Bible says. With God, all things are possible. And it, again, it is true. All things are possible with God. There's no doubt about that. But, but what is the context of this verse? What is Jesus talking about here? Because it is Jesus speaking, by the way. Jesus is the one who says this. Why did he say this, though? That's, that's a good question. What was he addressing? What was he speaking to that made him say this? In order to understand this verse, we really need to understand the, back, the backdrop, the story, the context. And this passage really begins all the way back in verse 16. So if you have your Bibles, turn them to Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to go all the way back to verse 16, and we're going to begin with a well-known story. Most of you are probably familiar with it if you've been in church in any amount of time. We call it the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler. Uh, we're going to read it together, and I, I just want to let the text speak for itself. Uh, we'll unpack it a little bit as we uh, get through it and, and, and kind of arrive, hopefully, at a context that will make our verse in question this morning make a little bit more sense. So read with me, starting in verse 16. He says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the young man said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, that is six of the ten commandments. And they're the six uh, so-called ethical commandments, the outward commandments, Commandments one through four are typically more inwardly, have to do with one's inner life. Uh, numbers five through 10, the, the, the last six, have more to do with outward relational stuff. And so Jesus quotes those to him. Verse 20, it says, the young man said to him, all of these I've kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, I think a pretty straightforward story. Uh, rich young man comes to Jesus. He wants to know, how do I get to heaven? And an interesting side note, uh, I want you to pay attention to uh, uh, at least one key word here. He says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's an interesting word in the Greek. It's the word echo. It's a word that means literally to possess or to hold. So I don't want you to miss the wordplay here because I do, I do believe it is intentional. This is a guy who has many possessions and he wants to know, how do I possess eternal life? He sees, in other words, he sees heaven the same way that he sees all of his other stuff. It's just something to have. It's something to, to gain. It's something to possess. And so Jesus enters into this dialogue with him. And after some back and forth about the commandments and living an upright life, and Jesus cuts right to the heart of the issue like he usually does when he speaks to people. And he calls this guy to leave his idols behind him because that's what they are. They're idols. This is a guy who has made a lot of money. He's had a lot of, of things as a result of that. He finds great satisfaction and security in those things. And so they had become idols in his life. And so Jesus does what God always does to his people, which is he calls them to repent of their idolatry and leave them behind and come and wholeheartedly Follow after him. What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. For you cannot serve, he says, God and money. Now, um, today, idols are, I would say, very rarely little carved figurines that you bow down to. If you're doing that, come talk to me afterwards. That's weird. But, but, but they are typically not figurines, but they come in all kinds of forms and sizes, right? Idols can be anything. It can be your money. It can be a person. It can be a loved one. It can be your family, your job, your hobby, sex, pleasure, food. It can be pretty much anything you want it to be. You, you can make virtually anything in this world an idol in your life. Anything that rules your life, anything that masters you, that has mastery over you, anything that you are unwilling to relent of or let go of for the sake of the kingdom of God, those things are idols. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, I will not be mastered by anything. Anything I'm unwilling to sacrifice, that I'm unwilling to let go of, that I'm, that I'm unwilling to part ways with, has likely become an idol. This man is unwilling to give away his possessions. Why? Because they'd mastered him. They were his source of satisfaction and security. And Jesus says, unless you are willing to leave it all behind you, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. It won't happen. I had a conversation this week with a, a, a good friend of mine. We were talking about certain questions that, that I often and he often gets from people who are non-Christians in the world. And they're typically questions <clears throat> involving some kind of social issues. And they're usually questions that are meant to sort of draw us off sides, right? And, and so, it, you know, it's questions like, you know, well, what does God think about, about you know, uh, uh, writing? Or what does God think about homosexuality? Or what does God think about... And, and, and the thing that... The thing that I've, I've, I've come to start doing in these situations when someone asks me this is I will say to them, listen, the message of Jesus, if you just synthesize it down into a simple, like one statement formula, the message of Jesus is to come and die. To come and die. To give everything, to let go of all control, to die and to follow. That's it. And so rather than asking, what does God think about A, B, and C, it's better to ask, what things in my life am I unwilling to let go of in order to follow him? Because if I'm unwilling to let go of those things, I'm not ready to follow him. Jesus says, you can't follow me. You cannot do it. You cannot serve two masters. One will overcome the other. And it says that this man was unwilling. He was grieved. He was sorrowful because he realized, I can't do it. I love my stuff too much. I want to love Jesus and I want to have eternal life, but I don't love it enough as, or as much as I love my stuff. And I want you to understand something here too, because I, I think that this, these are the kinds of passages that, that are used sometimes to weaponize, you know, money is a problem and we should all be poor and giving everything away. And money is not the problem here. Possessions are not the problem here. It is the love of money and possessions that is the problem here. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it's often misquoted. People often misquote it as money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. The, the complete dependence upon, the love, the infatuation with money is the root of all evil. In fact, Paul goes on in that verse, he says, some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs as a result. The issue for the rich young ruler was not that he had many possessions. It's that he had a great love for his possessions. You see, Jesus is teaching us something here 
about the nature of salvation. Something that we all have to come to terms with. That we all have to come to grasp with. Faith in Christ requires you to abandon everything to follow him. The willingness to surrender it all. Well, what about this one part of myself? Or what about this one part of my life? Or what about this one relationship? Or what about this one thing? It doesn't matter. If you're unwilling to give it away for the sake of Jesus, you're not ready to follow him, he says. These are the kinds of things that he would say that made people walk away sad. You realize that, like this, you know, Jesus is often painted in popular cultures. It's like peace, you know, peaceful, loving, you know, everyone loves Jesus. Everyone thinks he's just the nicest guy in the world. He said some really not nice things. Like if you're not, if you're not, like remember the one story about the guy who's like, you know, well, I want to follow you, but my father just died and I need to go bury him. Pastor Jesus says, let the dead bury themselves. Again, not going to find it on a coffee cup. But it's what Jesus said. Because if you're going to follow him, it is an all or nothing proposition. It's either Jesus or everything else. It can never be both. Now, that sets up the context for our passage. While Jesus is having this discussion, apparently his disciples were off to the side, sort of watching and listening the whole time. And so after the young man walks away, sad, sorrowful, grieving, Jesus turns to his disciples and he begins to speak to them now to sort of pivot off of that discussion and continue teaching them. This is what he says. This is in verses 23 and 24. He says, amen, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And look at the disciples' response. This is how they they can't, they're shocked. Verse 24, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? The the, the disciples assumed that if anyone is going to get into heaven, it's going to be the rich people. In other words, if rich people aren't going to heaven, no one can go to heaven. No one can do it. Now, we need to stop here for a moment and understand what's going on here because their response to what Jesus is saying is really important for us to understand the meaning of his response here in this verse. When we think about wealth and riches from an ancient perspective, the common belief in the ancient world was that rich people were favored by God, that they had favor from God. They were his favorites. That's why they were wealthy. They had likely lived with wisdom in their lives, and as a result of that wisdom in their life, God was blessing them for it. And this is an idea that honestly is woven into some of the Proverbs as well. Now again, not a love for money. Love for money is the root of all evil, but there is a correlation in Proverbs between living with wisdom and being blessed with riches. Again, don't take my word for it. Proverbs 10.4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. There is a formula here. If you work hard, you will become wealthy. Is this true for every single person who has ever lived? No. Proverbs are about generalities. They're about potentials, not promises. But in general, it is true. If you work hard, you will likely reap a reward for how hard you work. I mean, that's just a general operating principle in life. Proverbs 10.22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. This is a Hebrew word that just literally means wealth. It's not like rich in godliness, right? Like, it's actual wealth. Uh, Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. 
So understand that the disciples, much like the rest of the ancient world, saw wealth as, as a, a blessing, as favor from God, and such that wealthy people were held in favor because of the way that they lived. They were blessed as a result of it. So when Jesus comes along and he's like, yeah, it's going to be really hard for rich people to go to heaven. They're like, wait, what? You know, it creates confusion. They're, they're thinking, why would God bless a person with financial gain only to turn them away in eternity? It doesn't make any sense. And so in some ways, they're asking a very legitimate question. They're asking, who then can be saved? If, if the people who we think of all people are, are not going to go to heaven, or it's going to be very difficult for them to go to heaven, then who else has a shot? Because they're like the best of the best. No one can get saved if that's the case. And it is that question that Jesus is answering in verse 26. But Jesus gazed at them. It's not just the regular word for looked over to. He gazed deeply at them and he said to them, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The point of Jesus' statement is not so much that God can do anything, although that is true. He can do anything. He's God. But his point is not so much that God can do anything, but that God can save anyone. Understand that. There is no one outside of the bounds of the grace of God. No one is beyond the saving hand of Jesus. It doesn't matter if they are rich or poor. It doesn't matter if they are Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter how they vote or how they speak or what they believe or what kind of music they listen to or how they dress or how many drugs they've done or how much porn they've looked at or how many laws they've broken. No one is outside of the scope of salvation. It seems impossible. But with God, all things are possible, including bringing the worst of us to repentance. Now, here's what I want to do. For the remainder of our time this morning, I want us to talk through the aspects of salvation, but I want to do so from the human perspective in this text. So often when I talk and teach about salvation, I talk about it from what I would call the divine perspective, because generally that's how the Bible talks about it as well. What God has done in his grand economy to bring about salvation. That's typically how the Bible talks about this. God has chosen me from the foundation of the world. He's predestined me to walk in his fullness of the life he's given me. He's made me alive together with Christ. Christ becomes my substitute. He takes upon himself my sin and the wrath of God and in exchange I'm clothed with his righteousness. He places his Holy Spirit in me. All of these things are true. They're beautiful promises of scripture with regard to the divine perspective of salvation but here's the deal, you didn't know any of those things were happening when they were happening, when you came to faith. You had no idea. We say all the time, you know, you don't choose Jesus, Jesus chooses you. And you think back to that moment when you confess Christ, and you're like, I don't know, I mean, it feels like I chose Jesus there. I, I remember praying, I remember doing that, that I wasn't like programmed, I, I remember that, and I made that choice. That's because this is an important distinction that I want you to get in your mind, and hopefully this will help you bring some, some kind of, I don't know, resolution to some conflicts you have with regard to, to salvation. It's because you experience salvation from a human perspective, but the Bible explains salvation from a divine perspective. They're different. You don't experience salvation from the divine perspective. You're not divine. You're human. You experience it from the human perspective. God is not human. He's divine. 
So he talks about it and enacts it from a divine perspective. So this morning, I want to do something I've never done before. I want to talk through and teach through the scope of salvation, the salvation experience, but I want to do so from the human perspective. And my hope is that for those of you who are Christians, you'll understand your conversion experience a little bit better. And perhaps uh, for those of you who are not Christians, my prayer is that you'd be led through the gospel and that maybe for the first time you would believe this morning that you would receive eternal life. I would love to see that. I would love to see you come to faith today. So let's talk through it briefly. It begins with a concern about my own inadequacy. The story of the rich young ruler begins with him asking Jesus this question about how he can inherit eternal life. How do I go to heaven? But if we're just being honest, like if we're, if we're thinking about who this guy is and, and, and we think a little bit about how he might have viewed the world around him, it's a strange question for him to ask. It's a, strange, it's a strange question to ask for someone who's so confident that he's already doing everything right, right? I mean, he, he already has all of the money and possessions he could possibly need. He, he has a pretty great present life that he is living, and yet it seems like he's thinking about life beyond the present life. Something leads him to approach Jesus and begin asking this question, what comes next? How do I get there? How do I possess that? And beyond that, Jesus tells him in verse 17, well, if you want to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments, the six of the ten commandments. And this guy is so self-deceived, he thinks he's actually doing it. Verse 20, he says, all these commandments I've kept. Sure you are. So again, he seems secure. I've got everything I could need in this life. I have all the satisfaction and security that I could possibly want or desire everything at my disposal. I'm living a very morally upright life. I am following the commandments. I'm keeping the commandments. And even still, look at how he responds in verse 20. He says, well, but what else do I still lack? What else is there? He's aware. There's just something else. There's something missing. There's something in me that's lacking. Something is not right. I have everything I could possibly need. I'm rich. I've got a lot of comfort. I'm a apparently a pretty moral guy, but deep down, there is a sense that something is not right. And I believe this is where it all begins for all of us. Everyone becomes aware at some point that there is more to this than what I see. There is an awareness of something greater than myself, something bigger than myself. And we would call that God, the presence of God. And in theology, in the world of theology, we have a term for this. We call this general revelation. General revelation. There is general and special revelation in systematic theology. Special revelation is what we would call the Bible. It's God's specific revealed uh, work. It's, it's, it's his full, fully revealing to humanity, whoever reads it, whoever sees it, whoever is in touch with it, right? The gospel, everything in the scriptures, the person and work of Jesus Christ, special revelation. But not everybody hears the gospel. Not everybody has read the Bible. And yet still, everybody has this sense of lacking and this sense of an awareness of something greater. That's because apart from special revelation, there is also something called general revelation, it's not specific enough to bring someone to faith. It's not specific enough, like you don't get saved through general revelation, but it is enough to make you aware that there is something out there. There's something going on beyond me. And it can be found in at least two places according to the Bible. In creation is the first place. Psalm 19, verses one and two. The heavens declare 
the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork, it says. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The psalmist is saying, if you just look at creation, it is saying something to you. That there is a God out there who has done all of this. It is pouring out. It is speaking to you. It is revealing knowledge to you. There is more to all of this. Paul picks up on this as well. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived. Clearly, ever since the creation of the world, in the things, what, that have been made. Paul is saying people are aware intuitively that God exists simply by looking around. It doesn't matter if you didn't grow up in a religious home. Some of you didn't. I didn't. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you've never been exposed to the concept of God, although we're living in the South and the Bible Belt, it seems impossible that you have never heard of God before. But let's just say for sake of argument that you've never heard. Today is the first day anyone has ever said the word God to you. You have no clue at all. What Paul is saying is even that doesn't matter. You're aware. You know intuitively there's a feeling within you that God is real, that there is something bigger than yourself, and it is evident simply by taking a look around. It's evident in creation. Now, some of you who think skeptically might be thinking, well, what about blind people? Well, good news, they have no excuse either because general revelation comes through creation and second, through conscience. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter two. He talks about those who have never heard anything about Jesus at all. And in Romans chapter two, verse 15, he says, the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. He's saying, even though they may not know what is right according to scripture, they know what is right according to what God has put on their hearts. And this is true. I mean, when you consider the vast landscape of human cultures throughout human history, you find a lot of the exact same moral laws across the board, regardless of their religious affiliation. Why? Because we know that killing someone is wrong. We, we know it, it's, it's within us, We're, we, we, we intuit it. We can push it down, we can try to silence it, we can try to stuff it away, but we know that we are doing something wrong when we do it because God has written it onto our hearts and our consciences bear witness to that as well. There comes a point in our life, I think, when, when this kind of awareness that, that God is real We may not know who he is. That that comes with special revelation. But that there is a God and that the reality that there is a right and wrong is, is binding on us, that awareness strikes us to the core eventually. For the first time, we start asking the question, well, where will I go when all of this ends? Or or even better, have I done enough to get there knowing that we haven't? Knowing that I have fallen short. I just can sense it. There's something inadequate about me. It doesn't matter how successful my life looks, how great my relationships are, I feel a sense of lacking within me and I become concerned about that. Some of you are here this morning 
in that space. You can sense it. There's more to life than all of this. And you're aware of your own inadequacies and you're not even sure why you feel that way. And it's because you are inadequate. The Bible says we all are. We all fall short of God's glory, Romans 3.23. And God has given us through general revelation in both creation and in our own consciences the ability to sense it, to feel it. So it starts with a concern about my own inadequacy. It moves, second, to a confrontation with the truth. That's what happens here with this rich young ruler. He's he's confronted with the truth in the living word, Jesus Christ. At first, he's concerned with this feeling of inadequacy, but it was only a feeling. But once he's been confronted by Jesus, he no longer feels like he's lacking. He knows he's lacking. He knows he's unwilling to give away his possessions. He knows he falls short. There's no doubt anymore. Now, how does this happen today? What brings a person to this place through hearing the gospel of Christ? That's it. The written word about the living word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you are confronted with the truth of the gospel that you are born in sin and broken, that explains why you don't do the things you want to do and you do the things you do not want to do, why you hide things, why you're insecure, why you don't want people to know the full uh, depth of who you are because there's shame and there's fear of what are people going to think about me. The, The gospel confirms all of that. It's because it's real. And it is in every single person. And so it puts you in a position now to start making some choices. You begin with a concern of inadequacy. You're confronted with the truth. Third, you're called to repentance. Now that I know the truth, that I am broken and dead in my sin, I am forced to make a decision. Am I going to keep living this way or am I going to repent? The word repentance, I think, is a word that really gets a bad rap. It's been used by a lot of really heavy-handed people and it kind of has this real churchy, ugly feel to it. But let me just be very clear and blunt with you. Repentance is an essential thing to the Christian. You cannot, hear me, this this is as clear as I can be. You cannot be a Christian without repentance. That is clear as day in the Bible. Repentance is necessary before you trust in Jesus Christ. It's the Greek word metanoeo. It's a word that means to change one's mind. It means I think one way about something, and when I repent, I change my mind, and I think differently now about that thing. This is something that Dallas Cowboys fans do every season. (laughs) We think we're going to the Super Bowl, We repent, we change our minds, we know we're not going to the Super Bowl. This is the position that every person is faced with. Will I change my mind about the present way I live my life and the way that I believe the world is governed and will I change it now to acceptance of what the Bible teaches? You can either fully repent or you can move on uh, to the other direction. This is sort of a fork in the road. So we're going to, assuming you repent, there's a next step. We'll go there in a moment. But let's stop for a moment, and let's just say maybe you don't repent. What's the alternative? Here's how it works. You begin to stuff that feeling back down and silence it. Just try and forget about all this. Now, there's no way they're right. Begin to rationalize. There's no way they're right. They're not that great of people anyway, which you're right about that. We're not that great of people. Uh, we're broken. We need the Savior just as much as you do. Um, but, but, but you begin to silence that and stuff it down and push it aside and push it away and not think about it. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to be inconvenienced by that, right? I, I don't want to deal with all of that. And the Bible says that when we do that, something happens to my heart every time I push that down and stuff it away. 
It becomes hardened. That's the word that, that, that Paul uses very regularly. We harden ourselves and our hearts to the truth of God's word. Romans chapter one uh, talks about how how there are people who are living in sin and, and how when you continue to do this, when you continue to, to harden yourself over and over and over again, God eventually gets to a point where he just relents and says, all right, if you want to keep living that way, have at it, which is a really terrifying place to be. When God says, you want it your way, you got it. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, it says, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart. He goes on in verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is what's happening with the rich young ruler, right? He doesn't repent. He walks away sad, sorrowful, grieving because he's unwilling to surrender the things that he knows are preventing him from walking fully in what God is calling him to walk in. And some of you are in that same category. You've heard the gospel so many times and every time you reject it, you're just furthering yourself away from it. You're hardening your heart. It becomes harder to hear it every time you shove it down. Which is why Hebrews chapter 3 verse 15 says very clearly, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why? Because there may not be a tomorrow. There may not be a tomorrow. Today may, may be the last time God ordains you hear the truth and believe. Now let's assume that you do repent. What happens next? Fourth, there's a commitment to believe. Now that you've repented of your sin, next on the docket is believe the gospel, right? You've, you've, you've changed your mind about your sin. You've turned the other way. You're in agreement with God. Yes, that's sin. I shouldn't live that anyway. I forsake that life. I'm giving it all to you. Now I believe the gospel. And it is the belief in the gospel, the Bible says, is, is really where the promise of salvation is found. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He goes on in verse 13, one of the most beautiful and hopeful verses in the New Testament. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, well, what if I've done drugs my whole life? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What if I'm a sex addict or an alcoholic or I've killed someone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What if I have a bunch of sin in my life that I've never told anybody? Welcome to reality. You're no different than any of us. And the Bible says that if you repent of that sin and you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that regardless of what it is that you've done in your past, the grace of God is big enough to cover it and that you will be saved, that you will have eternal life. That's the promise of God in Scripture. It's the promise of God that we can hold to. And finally, when that happens, fifth, we rest in a contentment in grace. Knowing now that my sin is out in the open, it's been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. I can walk in the full freedom and the forgiveness that Christ has given me. I have nothing to be ashamed of anymore. There's no more hiding. There's no more insecurities. It doesn't matter how bad your past is. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter what people think of you once they know what you repented of. It doesn't. Because you're going to go into eternity with their opinions having 0% affected your eternal life. 
You can walk in the full freedom and contentment knowing that everyone else may think I am an absolute disaster, including myself, but the grace of God has covered me because I believed and I confessed and I repented. And, and the Bible says if I do that, I'm saved. I wanna end this morning with a prayer like I usually do, but rather than um, just jumping right into it, I wanna give you a moment personally And if you are a believer, this is what I want you to pray about. I want you to consider the gratitude that you have for God. As you think about your own conversion experience, you think about the way God worked in your life, and now that you know a little bit more about uh, the the divine perspective of salvation that you've probably learned in other sermons and and in Bible studies, you can kind of see how those things were happening behind the scenes as you walked through that human experience of conversion. Because it was. It was going on behind the scenes. You just didn't know it. You didn't see it. I love to think about my own conversion experience that when I came to faith at 21 in this church 16 years ago, there was something lacking in me. There was something inadequate that I knew, that I was aware of. But when I begin to think now, having lived all these years walking with Jesus, I can see how the hand of God was on me way before even that. As a kid, and some of the experiences that I had, the way that God revealed himself to me in these subtle ways, and, and it was all leading up to that moment, and that moment may be right now for you. And so if you are not a Christian, this is what I want you to consider, is that maybe for the first time, and perhaps the last time, you're given this opportunity to repent and believe and enter into eternal life with Jesus. That was what I prayed this morning, that, that God would, would re- grant us some kind of revival here, that we would start seeing people leave the life that they know is leading to death and despair and that they would say, Lord, I'm done trying to do it my own way. Take it, use me, save me. We believe he will if you cry out to him. I'm gonna give you a moment to pray and then I will close us out. Father, would your Holy Spirit bring conviction this morning and and lead those people that you are going after, that you mean to bring into your kingdom, would today be the day that they would lay their life down for your sake and follow you. We thank you, I thank you, that you led me down that path so many years ago. I don't know anyone who follows Jesus who regrets it, who looks back on that time and thinks, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I don't know a single person. I know so many people, including myself, who wished we'd gone down that path sooner. So would you grant faith where possible and where necessary? And would you save those who cry out to you? How we love you, how we honor you, we thank you, we're filled with gratitude that you call us out of darkness and into light. Pray that you'd be glorified in all of those things. 
pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me, let me say to you, some of you that, that do become believers, there are gonna be people in your life when you walk out of this room that are going to be an utter shock that you call yourself a Christian. They will. And, and, it, and let's just be honest, it's, it, it, that's rightful of them, <laughs> probably. They're gonna think there's no way that that person is the real deal. They're gonna think it seems impossible. And remind them that with God all things are possible and that anyone can be saved who calls upon his name. Amen? Amen. God bless you. See you next time.